Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at Zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 and this episode is entitled The Holiness of Immigration. As a pastor, people frequently ask me what the Bible says about specific topics. In my lifetime and in my career, I have been asked more about what the Bible says about same-sex marriage than any other topic. I'm also asked about what the Bible says about our origins and creation versus evolution, and what the Bible says about treating the poor and the oppressed. What's interesting is even though I've been in pastoral ministry for over 10 years now, I have very rarely, if ever, been asked, what does the Bible say about immigration? Now, I've been told by a church member that the fact that I have not been asked this question is wrapped up in the privilege that I unjustly benefit from in this nation. Because if I pastored a Hispanic church or a Filipino church, I have been told that I would be asked frequently about what the Bible says about immigration. But what most Christians don't understand is that the Bible has a lot to say about immigration. So much so that there are nearly 200 verses in the Bible about this topic. When you compare that to the number that discusses same-sex sexual activity, which is six, it's rather stunning that Christians in America often ignore this important question. What does the Bible say about immigration? So today I'd like to give a broad overview about what the Bible says about immigration because it directly impacts what Zechariah writes about immigration in chapter 2 of his prophecy. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 where God is speaking to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish culture, people, and faith. God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so Abraham's journey begins by God calling him to be an immigrant. Nine chapters later, Abraham is an immigrant in the land of the Philistines. And we read about in verse 34 about how he resided as an immigrant for many days in their land. A few chapters later in Genesis 23, Abraham's wife, Sarah, passes away, and he goes to the Hittite people whose land he is in, and he asks them for space to bury his wife. His words are, I am a stranger and an alien residing among you. Give me property among you for a burying place so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites respond with generosity and give Abraham the prime gravesite for him to bury his wife. A few chapters later in Genesis 46, we are introduced to Abraham's grandson, a man named Jacob. Jacob is living in the land of Canaan when a terrible drought causes a crisis in his family. He is unsure of what to do when God speaks to him in a vision and God says to Jacob in chapter 46, verse three, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And so Jacob takes his family to Egypt, and for the rest of Jacob's life, they live in Egypt as a family of immigrants. After Jacob passes away and his son Joseph passes away, the Egyptians begin to enslave the Israelites. And after 400 years of enslaving the Israelites, God intervenes with a mighty hand by speaking to a man named Moses. Now Moses is an interesting person because 
He grew up in Egyptian royalty, even though he was an Israelite by birth. And when he was growing up in Egyptian royalty, he was enslaving the very people that he claimed his heritage from. And so one day, Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave, and Moses intervenes and murders the Egyptian who is doing this unjust beating. Well, because he has murdered an Egyptian, Moses has to flee and live as an immigrant in a foreign land, specifically the land of Midian. While living as an immigrant, he marries a woman named Zipporah, and we read in Exodus 2, verse 22, Zipporah bore a son, and Moses named his son Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. After living as an immigrant, God calls Moses back to Egypt to liberate the Israelites with a mighty and miraculous hand. God then leads the Israelites into the wilderness, and as God is leading them into the wilderness, God gives them a new religious festival known as the Passover to commemorate their liberation. Now, what's really interesting is that the directions for the Passover are given in Exodus chapter 12. And we read in that chapter over and over again about how immigrants who live among the Israelites will have specific provisions so they can participate in the Passover feast with the Israelite people. And the reason for this is given in verse 49 of that chapter when God says to Moses, there shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. In other words, God wants Moses and the Israelites to know that the laws should apply equally both to the Israelites and the immigrants who live among the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses receives the Ten Commandments etched in stone by the finger of God. One of those commandments, the fourth commandment, is about how no one within the Israelite culture shall work on the Sabbath day. And specifically mentioned in that commandment is the fact that Israelites cannot make immigrants work on their behalf on Sabbath. So Sabbath is meant to extend to the immigrants as well as the native born. The third book of the Bible is the book of Leviticus, and it is filled with rules. Lots and lots of rules, and it can be laborious to read through the book of Leviticus on your own. But somehow, someway, there's this chapter that snuck into the book of Leviticus, which is chapter 19, which I personally find inspiring. Leviticus 19 is how Israel and what rules Israel will incorporate to become a holy nation. And what's interesting is that these rules in Leviticus 19 don't so much revolve around religious devotion as much as issues of social justice. And specifically, there are verses in chapter 19 about how to be more just to the immigrants and aliens who live among you. Verses 33 and 34 read, When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now that's a really important phrase because what God does in Leviticus is God connects Israel to their origin story 
so that Israel may become a more inclusive nation and people. God doesn't want Israel to start treating immigrants the same way that Egypt treated Israel as they were immigrants. God wants them to live by a different set of standards than the empires that came before them. From the third book of the Bible, we go to the fourth book of the Bible, which is Numbers, which tells us once again about the Passover and once again mentions that immigrants should be part of the Passover feast. And then in Numbers 35, we come across a really interesting law that is passed about how to protect immigrants when they've broken the law. Numbers 35 outlines what sanctuary cities are and allows any immigrant who has accidentally committed murder to be able to still live a peaceful and prosperous life even after they've murdered somebody who is part of the Israelite nation. From Numbers, we go to the fifth book of the Bible, which is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is about Moses' last words to the Israelites right before he dies. They are given on Mount Sinai. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 and 19, we read Moses saying these words to the Israelite people. God, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them with food and clothing, you shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. According to Moses, we have to love the immigrants. It's not enough just to tolerate them. We have to love them because God loves them too. Now, toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29, just a few chapters before Moses dies, Moses assembles the Israelites to make a covenant before God. And the words that he uses to seal this covenant are found in verses 10 and 11. He says to the Israelites, You stand assembled today, all of you before the Lord your God, the leaders of your tribes, your elders and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your women, and the aliens who are in your camp, both those who cut your wood and those who draw your water, to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, sworn by an oath which the Lord your God is making with you today. Now, I find this fascinating because immigrants are making the covenant with Israel when they make the covenant with God. And if you're like me, you're probably surprised to find out how pro-immigration the first five books of the Bible are. But when you think about it, of course those five books of the Bible are going to be pro-immigration. Because, you know, they don't really have a home in the first five books of the Bible. And when you don't have a home, you're going to be more pro-immigration. And I think what's really fascinating about the way these books are written is that there's this constant refrain from God. Do not forget what it's like to be an immigrant. Always remember your origin story because if you disconnect yourself from that origin, you may end up perpetrating the same evil upon others. Now, things change drastically in the sixth book of the Bible because after Moses dies, a man named Joshua takes over. And Joshua leads a conquest, which is very different than immigration, into the promised land. There's lots of violence. There's lots of death. 
If you've listened to the Paradox podcast before, you know we are very critical of the theology of the book of Joshua. But just when you feel like giving up on how the Bible feels about immigration and conquests, we then come across another book, two books later, called the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a story about Ruth who is a Moabite and she is an immigrant living in Israel's land trying to find out what her rights are and how the law applies to her. Now, there are several male pastors who love to tell the story of Ruth as a word of warning to women to wait for their Boaz. Um, and it's this weird, like, kind of purity culture sermon that is not really what Ruth is about. Because Ruth, in chapter 3, goes to Boaz at night, wakes him up and says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. In other words, she is claiming her rights as an immigrant and holding Israel, represented by Boaz, accountable for taking care of her. And at the very end of the book of Ruth, it is revealed that Ruth is actually King David's great-grandmother. And so King David is the descendant of an immigrant. We then read about David building his empire in 1 Samuel. Then in 2 Chronicles, we read about David's son Solomon taking the empire even further. But then something rather strange happens with Solomon. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, then Solomon took a census of all the aliens who were residing in the land of Israel, and there were found to be 153,600. 70,000 of them he assigned as laborers, 80,000 as stonecutters in the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. In other words, Solomon looked at the immigrants living in Israel, and he enslaved them. Now, I think this is very important to remember because God said throughout the first five books of the Bible, you shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And Solomon forgot where he came from and what his nation's history actually was. Now, Solomon was not well-liked by the people of Israel. And when people decided to record the history of why Solomon was not well-liked, they quickly blamed the immigrants living among them. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 4, we read, King Solomon loved many foreign women. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. So the Bible begins with five books that repeatedly affirm the importance of integrating and treating with dignity and justice the immigrants who live among a nation. Then Solomon comes along and builds a massive amount of wealth and immediately, people, once they have land and money, are suspicious of immigrants. The accumulation of wealth often leads us to be suspicious of immigrants. This is well documented in history and in the Bible. Well, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two because people just really did not like Solomon as a king. Several years later, an empire rises to the east known as Babylon, they come in in 586 BCE and destroy Jerusalem and take whatever survivors are left back with them 
to live in Babylon. So the exiles of Israel who are living in Babylon begin to dream of what will happen if they survive this exile and are able to return to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, one man starts to dream and receives a vision from God, he claims, that talks about what the new Jerusalem will look like. And the new Jerusalem has a generous amount of space for the immigrants once again. This man's name is Ezekiel, and in chapter 47, he writes these words, In whatever tribe aliens reside, there you shall assign them their inheritance, says the Lord God. In other words, immigrants are entitled to the same inheritance as the native-born. Ezekiel is revolutionary while he is living in exile. Now, another prophet who wrote while most of Judah was living in exile was a man named Jeremiah. He began to write that God will punish the people of Judah for 70 years with this exile. And while 70 years may sound like an abstract amount to you, people heard this and they really latched on to the literal translation of that prophecy. And they believed that they would be restored in the year 516 BCE. 47 years later, a man named Cyrus the Great showed up from Persia with an entire army and they destroyed the Babylonians. They found the people of Judah living in exile and allowed them to return back home as long as they paid their taxes. And the people of Judah returned to Jerusalem to find the city in ruins, but encouraged by the fact that they had the opportunity to rebuild it. They began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem for 10 years, 12 years, 14 years, 16 years. And after 66 years of this punishment, which was supposed to only last 70 years, the people began looking around and saying, uh, God seems to be a bit behind schedule on our restoration. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that this is the context that Zechariah wrote his prophecy in. And in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, we read the thesis statement of Zechariah's prophecy. He writes, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. In other words, God's restoration is conditional. God's restoration is not entitled. And so we talked about last week about how there had to be some severe structural changes to the way the people operated as a city so that the devastation they faced before would not happen again. Now, Zechariah illustrates these changes with a number of visions, and one of those visions I'd like for us to look at today in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Zechariah writes, I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I asked, where are you going? The man answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length? Then the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. Now, it's important to remember that when Zechariah gets this vision, he's thinking of the new Jerusalem that he is currently rebuilding. 
This is not some other Jerusalem that's some pie-in-the-sky, ethereal dreamland, but instead is a real brick-and-mortar dream that they are trying to bring into reality right now. And so in this vision, God tells Zechariah, don't build a wall around our city because I will be a wall of fire around it. So Zechariah tells the people, let's rebuild Jerusalem without a defensive wall. And you can imagine that people heard that and said, what are you nuts? Don't you remember what happened 66 years ago? The Babylonians came in and they destroyed us. We need a bigger wall than we had before. And it's almost like Zechariah's vision is a critique of what was before, which was, guys, we had a wall and it didn't protect us before. Why would a new wall protect us in the future? Now, you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but understand what Zechariah is proposing in this vision. Zechariah has a vision for New Jerusalem, and it's a city with an open border. Now, as you can imagine, not everybody was on board with the idea of an open border. Specifically, you can read another book of the Bible named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah lived 50 to 70 years after Zechariah, and he was appointed to be the governor of Jerusalem by the Persian Empire. Now, Nehemiah really believed that God was calling him to rebuild the entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. Then in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, we read that that wall was completed 52 days later. Now, what's interesting is that both of these books are in the Bible, Nehemiah and Zechariah. And if Zechariah was alive during Nehemiah's day, I think he would have said, I strongly disagree with Nehemiah's decision to rebuild the wall. To which Nehemiah probably would have responded by saying, I don't really care what you say, Zechariah, because you are super dead by the time I'm building this wall. Now, I tell you all this because I want it to be very clear. The Bible holds contradicting opinions on immigration. I mean, Solomon had very different opinions about immigrants than Moses. Zechariah's got a very different opinion on immigrants than Nehemiah. The Bible holds all of these contradicting opinions on immigration. And while there are contradicting opinions on immigration, we also have to acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of Scripture voices strong advocacy for and inclusion of immigrants. Now, Zechariah is an activist for open borders, and Nehemiah is a governor whose legacy is tied directly to a taller, stronger border wall. Now, this may seem hard to believe, but when I gave this sermon on a Saturday, just six days before on a Monday, the President of the United States tweeted a picture of himself looking lovingly at his taller, stronger border wall on the Mexican border. And Nehemiah most likely would have liked and retweeted this picture because he would have supported this wall. Zechariah would have seen this picture and criticized the president 
and told the president that what he was doing was against the will of God. Now, what's interesting about this story in particular with the current border wall that is being built in America today is that most Christians don't know that before a president is inaugurated, there is an American tradition that the president will hear a sermon from a pastor at St. John's Episcopal Church, which is right next to the White House. Now, the pastor that was selected for Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017 was the Reverend Robert Jeffress. And Robert Jeffress, right before Donald Trump's inauguration, preached a sermon to Donald Trump about Nehemiah. You can read the transcript from this sermon in Time magazine. Some of Robert Jeffress's words to the future president was, God instructed Nehemiah to build a wall around Jerusalem to protect its citizens from enemy attack. You see, God is not against building walls. To which if Zechariah was in the congregation that morning, I picture him standing up and saying, hey, God gave me a vision explicitly stating opposition to walls. And I tell you this, not to say that Robert Jeffress was wrong in citing that Nehemiah would be supportive of Donald Trump's wall, but to point out the fact that you can find a passage of scripture to support just about any action you want to today. And our job as a church is to inform and educate you to understand that those contradictions exist so that you can use wisdom to ultimately discern where we believe God is leading us. We wanted to be so upfront about this that when you look at the logo for our Zechariah series, there is an image of a wall deteriorating and people streaming in just like Zechariah wanted. And when you look at the logo for our Nehemiah series, there are armed guards building a wall as told by Nehemiah. These are contrasting visions and they are both in scripture. And while you may wonder which one are we supposed to do, are we supposed to be pro-wall or against wall, the fact is the personal application of scripture requires wisdom. And while I believe that Nehemiah would be very supportive of the border wall of Donald Trump, today we are studying Zechariah. And I believe that if Zechariah was alive with us in America today, that he'd be an advocate for open borders. Now, for the majority of my life, I've heard about how open borders are a pie-in-the-sky dream that doesn't work in reality. The number one reason why people have objected to open borders is because of economic reasons, which is really interesting because I recently read a book by Dr. Brian Kaplan from George Mason University called Open Borders, where he talks about how economic growth is sure to follow if America were to open its borders. In that book, he points out something that I did not know until I read that book, which was up until the 1920s, the United States had open borders. Now we need to put an asterisk next to that statement because obviously the borders were a little more open for people of European descent, but ultimately people could cross the border freely and return back to their native country as much as they wanted until the 1920s. Now, when I consider my own family history, this drastically changes the way that I view immigration. Because I can trace my roots all the way back to a man named William Hadley, who was born in England sometime around 1700. 
90. He immigrated with his parents into America in the year 1800 and arrived and lived in New York. While there, he eventually met a woman named Lucy Maria Warner, and her distant relative, Andrew Warner, immigrated to Massachusetts from England in the year 1630. Both of those family members, Andrew Warner and William Hadley, immigrated to America through an open border. And when you consider that my family came through an open border, if I were to stand up and be against an open border, it's almost like I've forgotten my origin story. It reminds me of those words that are found in the first five books of the Bible when God tells Israel, you shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens. My wife is the daughter of immigrants. Her mother, Ruth, arrived in America in 1963, and her father, Edwin, arrived in America in 1972. Now, Ruth and Edwin were married in 1976 in Loma Linda, California, and their daughter, Kimmy, was born seven years later in 1983. Edwin and Ruth had to go through a very different process to arrive in America than my distant ancestors. Because up until the 1920s, the United States had open borders. Now, things started to change drastically in the 1920s. One of the most terrible acts enacted by Congress was the 1923 Chinese Immigration Act, which made immigration from China impossible and ultimately separated families for decades. Not only that, but we read from Dr. Brian Kavlin that the key legislation, the 1924 Immigration Act, consciously turned back the country's demographic clock by basing nation's immigration quotas on the census of 1890, right before the dawn of high immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. So you have to picture what's going on here. You have a bunch of white Americans making the rules in the 1920s. And they literally say, hey, remember the good old days, 1890? Let's go back to those days because that seemed to be the right amount of immigrants living in America. And so we have to acknowledge that what America did was they closed their borders, closed our borders in the 1920s in an effort to preserve white supremacy. Now, there's been this reinvestment in our border strength, I believe, because something massive happened in the American psyche in the year 2015. According to the Pew Research Center, the Census Bureau's estimates for July 1, 2015, released today, say that just over half, 50.2% of U.S. babies younger than one year old were racial or ethnic minorities. In other words, in 2015, we had more non-white babies being born than white babies being born. 2015 is the year that Donald Trump started his campaign for president. And one of his biggest campaign promises was a giant, big, beautiful border wall. Well, this wall is a monument to preserving white supremacy in America. And if you don't believe me, then I have to ask you, why is it that we are only building one border wall? If Donald Trump is really about protecting our borders, 
Why isn't he trying to build two border walls? Instead, we get one border wall and it just, quote, happens to be on the side of our neighbors who are people of color. And when I look at these pictures that Donald Trump tweeted out of him lovingly looking at this giant border wall, I am reminded of the words that God said to the Israelites, you shall love the alien as yourself for you were aliens. God gave us a divine imperative to remember our origins. And one of the biggest critiques that I can offer for American citizens today is that we have forgotten our origins. To illustrate this, I want to tell you a story that took place while I was living in Montana. Now, while I was in Montana, I would hear all the time about real Montanans and not so real Montanans. And when the real Montanans would learn that I was from California, I would always get a side eye or an eye roll or just like an exasperated breath. Because eventually, these real Montanans would tell me, they'd say, you know what I don't like about California? You Californians keep coming up here and buying up all the land and driving up all the real estate prices and moving us out of our land. I'm a fourth generation Montanan and I am a real Montanan and I deserve to be here. Now that statement, I'm a fourth generation Montanan is rather silly. <laughs> and I say that because National Geographic in the year 2014 published an article about the oldest burial find they have in Montana. They found a skeleton that was approximately 12,600 years old. In other words, indigenous people arrived in what would eventually be called Montana around the year 10,600 BCE. Lewis and Clark arrived in, quotes, Montana in 1805 CE. So people of European descent will have been in Montana longer than indigenous persons in the year 14,405 CE. And here's a white guy saying, I'm a fourth generation Montanan. Get out of here. This is a failure to respect and honor the origins of indigenous persons. And whenever a white person wants to claim, well, I was here first, it is a sinful failure to understand our origins. And when you consider the Battle of Little Bighorn that happened in Montana and the ensuing retaliation from the American army and the betrayal and the forced exile to Oklahoma and the Cheyenne exodus in return, I mean, you have to consider all of the history of the gross injustices that America placed on the indigenous people of Montana. We have to remember that white people did not peacefully, fairly, or legally immigrate into Native Americans' land. And we conveniently forget our origins and the betrayal and dishonesty we treated indigenous persons so that we can more conveniently live on their land. We must do a better job of learning these origins so that we can make things right. 
so that we can work toward restoration and a better sense of justice. God gave us a divine imperative to remember our origins. So while we often talk about indigenous persons and immigrants, there is another group of people who did not choose to immigrate here to America. Instead, they were forced to immigrate through the horrible sin of slavery. We must always remember that enslaved men and women were never immigrants to America. And when white Americans consider their origins, we have to acknowledge that white Americans systematically separated enslaved men and women from their origins. White Americans broke up families for the distinct purpose of going against God's divine imperative. And when we fail to acknowledge that to this day, it is a failure to respect and honor the origins of the descendants of those who were enslaved. God gave us this divine imperative so that we might remember our origins and work towards something better. And so, my brothers, my sisters, and my siblings, may we take the time to learn and remember our history so that we may grow in repentance, hospitality, and love and so that we may fulfill God's divine imperative to remember our origins. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, including your family history.